Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Rich Schmidt. We're here with Ari and Brandy Gray. We're at Fairsing Vineyard in Yamhill. It's August 15th, 2022. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get you started, and either one can start with it, is why wine? Ooh, that's the, this why, the all things why? that all started with Brandy, so I think that's a good one for you to start with. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, in my former life, my former professional life, I was a, a print journalist. Um, I did that for about 10 years, and uh, I just always loved storytelling. It was something that was meaningful to me. And I it brought me to Oregon sight unseen. I didn't know anybody here. I'd never been here. I just was looking for a change and uh, fell in love with Oregon right away. And um, my folks ended up retiring out here about five years after I was gonna be here. My dad's like, I'm gonna plant some grapes. And at that point in my life, I knew that print journalism might not be the most sustainable pathway forward in the future. Not a lot of growth there, maybe. (laughs) Uh, So I needed needed to find something that was sustainable for me. And I knew I didn't want to leave Oregon. And uh, so it just, it made sense to me that if my family was going to do this, that one of us actually needed to know what we were doing. So I enrolled in the Chemeketa program uh, down in Salem. And I pecked away at it for years. At the time, I was working at a newspaper in Battleground, living in Portland and taking school in Salem. So that's like a 200-mile commute uh, just to go to work and school and come home. But it it was worth it. You know, you peck away at the things that matter to you. And um, it just... It became very clear to me that wine is just as much much about storytelling as being a reporter is. You know, it's the story of a place or uh, the people, um, the people you meet, the vintage. It it just, uh, it it grabbed me and cast the spell over me. So um, I just say, if you kind of dip your toe in the wine world, it's very common that it'll just like suck you in completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Well, uh, so I'm originally from Arizona. I also moved here sight unseen. First time I saw Portland was coming around the Twilliger curves. And again, same thing, just instant love affair. And at the time, I think I'd tried wine once or twice. Southern Arizona, certainly back when I was growing up, there was not a wine industry and uh, my parents never drank wine. One bad experience and I didn't like it because three bad wines in one night and a hangover that lasted about that same amount of days, not thrilling. And uh, Brandy and I met and what I always say is she almost said go out with me the first time because I told her I didn't like wine. And uh, she took a chance, I took a chance and I just I'll never forget that first time. Our first date was in Laurelhurst Park and you brought a red wine, not remembering maybe Ravenswood, maybe something Back like in that. The day. And I had I used to drink this uh, red uh, Dutch beer, Duchess de Bragon, I think is how it's pronounced. And it's this heady beer. And I was like, well, let's try that. And she tried this and 
she drinks it and goes, so you don't like wine, but this is your favorite beer? And I'm drinking the red wine, realizing these are not, I mean, it's sour. So nowadays, I just tried it recently out of nostalgia, and that beer was absolutely horrendously gross. <laughs> <laughs> After being in wine for long enough, that sour beer. But uh, then we started going out to the valley and going wine tasting. And again, the people, the places, the living with nature, um, that whole aspect of the way that wine is such a connector between people. I say in my tasting room a lot, you know, religiosity aside, there's a reason wine's used for communion. Wine's about togetherness and sharing. And you have the magic of the vines, you have the alchemy in the winery. It was irresistible. I was in uh, advertising at the time. I was a set designer for a commercial photography studio. And so my entire job was also inside of a dark building and uh, coming out into this world, it was really something very different, you know, and in advertising, whatever you've done never matters. It's only what's happening at the moment. Everything is ahead of time. Whereas this, it's also ahead of time because what do the grapes taste like and what are they gonna be like in six months, a year, 10 years? But it's such a different type of timeline that happens with them and there was just no resisting. And when you started uh, in tasting rooms, I just immediately started working part-time. It took almost three years of part-time work before I finally got my own tasting room. And so I was happy to have some weekends <laughs> for once. <laughs> well, before we get back into wine, I'm gonna back up a little bit. You obviously both had interesting careers before wine. So Brandy, we'll start with you. Tell me a little bit about getting into journalism and some of the stops you made and maybe some career highlights. Okay, uh, so I always really focused on community journalism, and I feel like that's that is a very different style. Like most people think journalism is just well, <laughs> they think it's all kinds of things. <laughs> 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 but community journalism is really about getting involved in your community and trying to support causes and help people, and that was something that was very meaningful to me. So I always chose to work at small family-owned papers as much as I could, which, you know, isn't as glamorous. Yes, I covered cat fashion shows more than once. <laughs> but the people you write about, you know, they they snip those articles out and they keep them and they they carry significance to that family forever and that that's a beautiful thing to be a part of somebody's life or touch their life that way. Um, I guess the highlights of my career would have been predominantly down in New Mexico. Uh, I started this series every year where we would focus on a nonprofit and really drive as much attention and focus as we could. And there was a mental health nonprofit out in the desert, which there's nothing out there. And um, it was about to be shut down and they were going to take mental health care away from a lot of very uh, marginalized people. and. I just couldn't stand it, so I just wrote about it and wrote about it and wrote about it until finally the state got involved and senators and legislators came in and they funded that program again. So it's like, hey, you just restored health care to, you know, a large population of people, and that was amazing. And then the other thing I think that is I'm very proud of is uh, there's a lot of Vietnam veterans down in New Mexico. Um, a lot of poverty, so they didn't have a choice. They had to enlist. And the moving wall is something that uh, travels around the nation, and it has the names of all the people, just like the monument in Washington. And it came out, uh, it was coming to Las Lunas, and uh, 
I went through and found everybody from the county whose names were on that wall, and I found their families, and I sat down with them, and I got all of their stories together. And so when people came, there was a, a, a special section, a pamphlet, that had every single story from someone who was there and as much information as we could have. Uh, and in some ways, politics aside, it, it was the most political thing you could do because it was a way to say, hey, look, this isn't just a name on a wall. This is a person, and this was their life, and this is their family, and this is the whole that, that's been created by what they did. And uh, I did win um, a state award for that, which felt really good. <laughs> Really, it's a really interesting project. So you, yeah. you mentioned coming to Oregon sight unseen. Yeah. Why Oregon? Well, I tried the East Coast um, uh, to go from Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Albany, New York. <laughs> there was 103 inches of snow my first uh, winter there, and um, no, <laughs> not going to happen. So I lasted one winter and said, hey, East Coast, great, not for me. Uh, and so I just knew that uh, I, I wanted something different. I wanted to explore. And that's the great part about being a community journalist at that time is there's always some really awesome small community somewhere around a major metropolitan area that you can go and try it out. And if it's not for you, you move on. Um, and at that point in my life, I didn't have any, you know, greater connections. It was just me. So I just packed up what I could fit in the back of my truck. I didn't have a chair or a bed or anything. And I said, whatever, I don't need that stuff. I'll figure it out when I get there, <laughs> which I guess now sounds really brave. And people have told me it's brave, but I didn't feel that way about it at the time. It was just like, I got to just take this opportunity. Mm-hmm. And Arlo, so some more question for you yeah. about getting into the into the profession uh, and some kind of career highlights for you as well. I had a really varied career. I actually started in the restaurant industry and uh, rose up to being a kitchen manager and quote unquote executive chef. Although at this point in my life, you know, through reflection, like ah, you're a kitchen manager, you're not really an executive chef. And I really love that industry. I just tended to have really bad luck with the people that I worked for. So I got soured on it pretty rapidly. I uh, went to art school in Tucson and uh, I came towards the end of that process and I'd spent so much time on my career that it took me a lot longer to graduate than uh, normal, almost twice as long. And uh, when I got close to the end, I was like, you know, I think I want to go into architecture because this is something that's more career driven than an art degree. And at that time, uh, I would have, once I graduated, I reapplied for architecture and they said, okay, well, you don't have to do any gen eds, but it's still gonna take you four years full-time. And I was student loan dead and just tired of going to school and working full-time. It's like, you know what, I'm gonna approach it from the other side and I started in construction. And uh, rose through those ranks really fast because I'm a third generation woodworker and got to the point where I was director of operations for like 27 remodel projects. And uh, that company ended up, well, long story with them and boring, <laughs> and, but I went at, ended up going out on my own and being a handyman. And that's how I uh, was left Tucson. I had my own successful handyman business, but I had these two friends that had come from Seattle and they moved to Tucson and rather than 103 inches of snow, it was 100 days of 100 degrees or more. And they said, this is too much. And uh, they were gonna move to Portland and they said, you know, you should come. 
and it was funny because I'd finally just kind of resigned myself to staying in Arizona at that point. I'd always hated it and, you know, it's like, well, my business and, you know, there's something about the desert. And I was finally, I was really making art and uh, trying to make a way of that as well. And I just thought about it and a couple of days went by. I said, you know, it's not worth it. It's just money. It's not, it's not uh, an opportunity in life to see somewhere new. And I grew up in Arizona. I was there by happenstance. So let's make a move that's something more deliberate. And uh, they actually took most of my stuff uh, about six months before I came out here. So most of my possessions lived in Portland before I did. And I didn't actually plan to stay here. Uh, my plan was to stay here for a few months and then go back to Arizona, kind of be a snowbird. Go back, work for my clients in the wintertime, then start trying to travel. Got here, things changed. Uh, realized there was a limit on how long you could put your student loans in forbearance. <laughs> and I had reached that limit. And uh, it's like, well, I guess I gotta stay, get a job. And so I found, I started doing construction, uh, was really badly injured. And a buddy of mine who was a photo a food stylist and a freelance photographer, uh, one day he said, you know, uh, they need help over this photo studio doing set design. I said, what the hell is that? And got there and realized that an art degree and a background in handyman, I had trained myself to be a set designer. And so for eight years, I was the only full-time set designer in the Pacific Northwest. And it was an absolutely fantastic job. It was so much fun. We made so much art because you can't just, there's just not work all the time. And sometimes you have down times. And I mean, we would spend two months just doing the photography for our Christmas card every year. <laughs> it was amazing. And, uh, but it was also unstable. You stand there and you say, okay, well, in some ways I'm really uh, secure because I'm the only person who does this. But if this studio goes under, they change, I'm dead. Uh, I know how to build fake things. I can't go back into the field anymore. And uh, so that's when, you know, through that course of, I started there and that's Brandy and I met right when I started after I started. And so then we started getting into wine and it seemed like that natural path. And so once Brandy got done with, uh, well, you weren't quite done with your education when you started, got your first tasting room management job. And I just went right in with her and applied at the same time. And yeah, then we just moved from tasting room to tasting room until we got to Colleen Clemens. And then when you left there, they offered me the tasting room manager job. Highlights, I don't know, I was really kind of boring. Uh, I just really worked and, uh, you know. Yeah, you sound boring. <laughs> yeah, that's all I did though. I didn't really, it's not like, oh, I won this prize or, you know. Um, I mean, I was just really proud of my work at the photo studio. It's one of those funny things that it's like in Handyman too, the better I did my job at any one of those things, the less you knew I was there. Mm -hmm. So here I'm a very widely published artist, extremely widely published, uh, but my work name's not on anything. And I mean, I guess I did get two art shows while we lived in Portland. That was, that was pretty fantastic uh, to have the opportunity, never sold anything, but that's the gallery's fault. <laughs> They're not open anymore, so it's okay. <laughs> so when it came to set design, as, as you started to kind of understand it, I'm curious what it actually, what it entailed and how many, how clients found you, how many clients you were working with. Uh, well, we were actually the largest photo studio uh, out, at our peak. We had 27 full-time photographers, uh, servicing Hannah Anderson, Nike, Pendleton, um, some of my proudest work was very simple, but it was very elegant for uh, Pendleton as they were looking for kind of helping create a new vision for their imagery. Uh, we did Target Canada while they were in business for that short time. 
uh, about 70,000 square foot studio. And so uh, really a large infrastructure put into that for the clientele to come in. Um, but I was really surprised at how much input I had on, on, you know, a lot of art directors would just be like, we need to be outside and it kind of looks like this and go, oh, well, this is what we have, this is what we can do. So it was really so much fun because it was all about problem solving and creating something and figuring out how to trick the eye. And uh, then of course, everything you build has to be broken down and folded and stored and, and figure out, you know, keep it again or change it. So it was just so much fun to have not only the building uh, problem solving, but the artistic side of that as well. And then to be on set and moving things around and making it look perfect. It was, uh, it was really exciting. So Brandy, you mentioned, you mentioned the, the, the grapes kind of came sort of almost by accident into your family. Your dad decides he's gonna plant grapes. And, and so tell me about the, the process for you of going to school and starting to understand the industry. What were the kind of initial, initial impressions and what, what was the experience like at, at Chemeketa? I was so glad to go back to school a second time. I think the first time around in college, it was the thing you did because you were raised knowing that you needed to have a job and so you should go to college. But then I'd been out in the world and was like, okay, now I'm going for myself and something I want to do. And whereas I think the first time around, I, I did what I needed to do to get through, but I really threw myself into the program <laughs> and studied. And also, again, I went from a, a background of staying away from math and science because let's avoid that as much as possible to now it's super important to know these things. And there were many nights I threw myself on the floor because <laughs> I didn't understand how to balance equations or how this algebra problem worked but I just I stuck at it and I think after I put myself through that I'm like okay I'm doing this <laughs> that's it that's it um, I just I loved it I loved everything about it I had fabulous professors who I felt really believed in me which isn't something you get at every university experience that you have um, if I didn't understand something there was always somebody there to walk me through it I just I really fell in love and I and I feel like a lot of people talk about wine as a love story and it is a love story but it's not like um, like a 90s rom-com love story you know what I mean like it's it's a lasting story just like yeah. marriage and that means it takes a lot of work sometimes and there are days and times you absolutely love it and there are times you want to throw your hands up and run away um, but that's that's what makes it work is that commitment and I just I immediately connected and knew it's what I wanted and just commit a hundred percent it's as simple as that really yeah. as you were going through the program did you did, did a kind of a career path or a, a, what you wanted to do did they emerge pretty quickly I, I knew I wanted to make wine I knew I wanted to make wine right away I loved everything about it or I used the word alchemy I think that's very very true uh, it just, it, it enchanted me. And, uh, I also knew at that point in my life, I was in my mid thirties that the opportunities and pathways for me to become a full-time winemaker would probably be slim because I have bills to pay <laughs> and it's, you know, you can only start over so much in your life. And I'd already started over and started over a few times. Uh, so I just really decided, hey, look, I think being in a tasting room is a perfect place for me. 
and if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this on my own. And I always intended to have a, a label but keep it small. So there was a few years where the fruit started coming in from the family property, and we just played and experimented and stomped with our feet, which we don't do anymore, and, <laughs> you know, just had a lot of fun with it and then started learning the process because if you're going to put yourself out there in this valley, in this industry, it, you know, you want to know what you're doing and know that what you're putting out there is is worthy of standing next to, I mean, really legends and icons in the industry, in the world. Um, it's a big, it's a tall order to stand up to. So I, it was just a very gradual, slow build. There's nothing glamorous about it. It's a lot of work. Um, and I think Ari and I spend a lot of time talking about how we love that we're small. We, we love being intentionally, we are intentionally small. Uh, when I started at the tasting room up at Fairsing, they had not opened to the public yet. Um, it was just this tiny uh, space up on the top of the hill. They had not expanded yet. I knew right away when I went up there, I'm like, oh my God, this place is spectacular. <laughs> and Robert Britton's the winemaker and he's phenomenal. I'm like, you guys, you can need more space. And they did not think anybody would want to drive up this hill. Um, and I, I knew they would, uh, but uh, now we're much bigger and we're, we're all right. I think we got to expand again already. Uh, <laughs> but um, Mike told me right away, one of the owners was like, hey, Brandy, you're going to make a little wine for us as part of your job. I'm like, okay, sure. That sounds great. Um, and so they actually built me this studio up here. Uh, it's a 20 by 20 space. It's not big, but it's enough to get the job done. And they're, I mean, they talk about my winemaking up in the tasting room more than I do. Cause I'm like, I'm here for fiercing when I'm here. And they're just like, well, did you tell them you're a winemaker too? Did you talk about that? I'm like, that's not why I'm here, you guys. So, um, it's just really the ideal situation, uh, for us. Like there it's, it's wonderful to be in a place where they're supportive of mm -hmm. your own passion. And it gives me the opportunity to stay connected to people and the stories, which is something I love and have my hand in that side of things. Because I think you'll find a lot in this industry that the people who really love both parts are maybe a little more rare. Like there are people who are definitely the people pleasers and presenters <laughs> and their front of house and people who are like, yeah, I could do without talking to people tend to be more uh, production and I'm just I'm someone who loves it all I love it all yeah so uh, tell me about we'll start with Brandy tell me about your initial tasting room experience uh, and what it was like when you were when you started kind of selling other people's wines Oof. so the first tasting room I worked at it was up in southwest Washington actually and it, they did everything. And I was like thrown to the lions <laughs> for sure. Um, wow. It, they, weddings, I was coordinating weddings. I was helping with harvest. People, and there was like, it was no rules. Like people would show up for their weddings with refrigerators in the back of their pickup trucks that they wanted to hook up. And then they were angry that you didn't have enough power on the property. I mean, just wild i'm like okay this is nuts like this is they were you know food service like this is way beyond and outside what i want to do um it, it just they weren't really focused on the art and the science and that's mm -hmm. what had drawn me to the industry and so um 
I applied for a tasting room management position at Colleen Clemens, and uh, I was surprised to get an interview because I still felt like I was very new to the industry. But again, I think my background kind of made me a natural fit, and uh, what an amazing experience mm. that was. Uh, Steve Goff, the winemaker there, is still one of my favorite winemakers in the Valley, just uh, showed me that not all winemakers are necessarily like have the bravado and walk in and like the swagger, you know, like, oh, I'm a rock star winemaker. He is so humble and down to earth and like the last person to talk about himself or promote himself and his wines are just beautiful. So I was very fortunate to do a uh, harvest with him and, um, really learned a lot from him in terms of structure and where you get that structure during fermentation and uh, how it's, it's really the hallmark of a beautiful wine is how it feels uh, on the palate and I'm definitely all about texture now. I'm probably rambling. <laughs> <laughs> You're not at all. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Aria, the next question is for you, kind of the same thing, talking about your initial tasting room experience and what, you, what your experience was like. Yeah, same. so obviously not thrown into the management side of it, but uh, working holidays and weekends uh, at the Southwest Washington. And I'm, I, it's funny, I'm kind of that mix of, like at home, I would definitely probably be more considered introverted, but uh, I love talking to people. I rarely shut up and... Uh, I started my education actually or in uh, the education department uh, looking to be a uh, primary education for hearing and sight impaired and I started running after school programs and taking my education classes and I just realized that really wasn't for me it was way too involved in like psychology and all of these other things I just wanted to teach and just have that kind of uh, a lot of teachers in my family and realizing they're more uh, born than made. And so that's where I kind of veered off and went to art. But then when I found my way into the tasting room, I felt like that was my, because I love the information. I'm no super taster. I'm not gonna write you a page of tasting notes about a glass of wine, uh, but it's all about the, the process and the science. And I really love that. And I've found so many people in the business on the tasting room side will say, well, if you get too technical, people just glaze over. I don't that doesn't happen to me. And I don't know if it's because I'm really genuinely enthusiastic about it. I'm like, let me tell you about this really cool thing. You know what heterozygotic is? Oh my God, you're gonna blow your mind. And uh, people get really excited and people tell me all the time, my God, I learned more today than all the times in years I've gone uh, wine tasting and that's just so gratifying for me. So part of that whole journey was I think just finding where my classroom was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, Hospitality, I kind of feel like, has always been a part of what I've done, no matter what it is, be it uh, obviously food service, uh, construction, it's hospitality. I mean, my office is in your home, which is very, there's some stories there. Um, and then even in set design, because it's, it's the client, it's the photographer, it's the stylist, everyone's a part of this team that I am servicing what they need. And so much of hospitality is just, excuse me, <clears throat> figuring out what it is that people need before they tell you. And some, for some reason, I'm really good at that, usually. <laughs> Be quiet. <laughs> With wine specifically, because there is such a, such a lot to learn in wine, how long did it take you uh, in the process to feel fairly confident talking about wine and the, and the, and the kind of art and science behind it? Hmm. <laughs> 
uh, maybe five or ten minutes. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see. So uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm really cocky, but also I love science already, um, and so I've really spent like I was the little kid who would go to the library and check out like ten different books, and none of them were, uh, you know, stories. They were all just science and learning. So I feel like, okay, I don't know the answer to that question, but I have enough information. And I studied alongside with Brandy the entire time. I would mostly be sitting on my computer and then wait for it to be like, this molecule and this, and I'm like, okay, let me get on Google. Let's figure this out. Um, so I studied alongside her the whole way. So I was really pretty prepared. Um, it's, it's when people start asking me about like other wine regions or other grapes. I'm like, <laughs> no clue. I know about Pinot Noir. I know about the Valley and I know about the general process of making wine. So even today, I mean, obviously people will say, oh gosh, you know so much. I'm like, I have a cursory knowledge of wine still, even at this point, I feel like. Uh, but then you can take that and somebody asks you a question like, well, okay, so if this happens and this happens, and then we always research in the tasting room. Somebody asks us a question we don't know. I'm like, okay, let's figure this out so we know next time. Excuse me. Losing my voice. <laughs> we'll give you a second to rest up <clears throat> for a moment. So tell me about this space here by first thing you mentioned kind of the expansion and the opening to the public tell me about the process of getting this place up to where it is now what have been the biggest steps along the way in your in your time here it's it's so exciting and such an honor to be given a role to open a brand um i was talking with someone about this the other day i feel like when you're you're making a commitment as a as a manager like that's not a job you can do in a year you know management if you're going to actually create a company culture and you're going to get a project moving, that's a, that's a minimum of a five-year commitment, um, which is so exciting that somebody's trusting mm -hmm. you and putting their hard work in your hands that way. Um, and it's very much been a, a their hands-on, very family-focused project. Uh, project and I know a lot of people say that that can mean it's a toxic work environment <laughs> these days I've been reading a lot about that like if we treat you like family means it's you should probably run but <laughs> that's not the case at all here I find it's the complete opposite like um you know we've learned together we've uh and we've gone through everything right I mean we got going we got opened what 2016 2016 is when we opened um, started uh, building on uh, the kitchen and the event space in 2017, opened that up, added a full culinary program and dinners and events and growing the team. And then, of course, the pandemic came and uh, kept our team, which I thought was amazing that we kept everybody employed and really, you know, worked hard to pivot. And I hate that word. We all hate that word, <laughs> but that's what you do. And that's what we've all done, which is why we hate it so much. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, just figured it out together uh, best we could and then reopened under a completely different model. Um, and and I've seen that work too. So now it's all reservations and, you know, hosting people tableside and more involved one-on-one -on -one experiences with people. And it's definitely more education than it was, you know, people kind of, oh, I think maybe I'll just stop by this place and pour me this thing in this glass and I'm gonna go hang out and look <clears> at the view. <throat> um, so, you know, much more connection. And uh, it's really, a, it's actually a very beautiful thing. I wasn't sure when I started that I would like a reservation model and now I love it. I love it.
Yeah, I can't imagine going any other direction, but we've mm -hmm. just started doing private events again. So now it's learning how to redo events. And I think we're having to approach everything differently too, because this isn't the same world that it was. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're gonna find people wanting to do the kinds of events that they were doing before, or it'll be years. I mean, it'll be years before I would feel comfortable sitting at a communal table in front of a bunch of strangers eating and drinking, you know, like I would want a little space. So how do you restyle and organize events for people that they're comfortable and they're profitable? It's, it's a big job. <laughs> what have you found in your experience um, sells wine? What, what, do, what are people attracted to? Oh, well, I mean, enth enth enthusiasm and authenticity. Mm -hmm. I mean, people can tell when you're genuinely happy to see them and that they're there and, and you're excited to share a story. I mean, you can't not connect with that energy. Um, and people can tell if you're faking it. I mean, it's, you, it's obvious and, and nasty. So mm -hmm. I think just having a sustained, honest passion about what you're doing and putting yourself in a space where you're you're sharing that and opening up to people and bringing them into the world. I mean, it's exciting and and that's what people are here for. They're I mean, especially they come to a beautiful vineyard. They they're primed. They want to be romanced. They want to be enchanted. So if they walk away and they haven't experienced that, we messed up, you know? Um, yeah. And Ari, tell us about your current role in, in, in the tasting room and wh where you're at and, and what, your, what your role entails. Yeah, so I'm with uh, Montanora State, which we are uh, our partners, Ackley Brands. So I'm the director of hospitality and we're in the process of opening two new tasting rooms, one in Winville, Washington and one in McMinnville, probably both open right about the same time. So, which is fine uh, considering uh, staffing issues that we're all having and trying to figure that out. but. I mean, one thing uh, working in a tasting room through COVID is we kind of came out of it a little bit unflappable. You know, whatever is thrown our way at any one point, you know, we had to constantly, how many Fridays did we have to go in early for emergency meetings because no one at the CDC ever worked in hospitality. So their new rules always came down on Thursday nights. Yeah. And so now we're, you know, I think it's just a matter of we have the staff we have and we do with the best we can with what we have. And, uh, so we're just trying to figure out, like, right now we're generally appointment only in Montanor, but we're not gonna be that at the new locations because they're more walk-ins. So how do we now, we've got in fixated or we've got uh, used to a mode of reservation and knowing who's coming and that's easy to move into. It's harder to move out of that and get the mm -hmm. staff to, you know, one thing we always are, I find that we're having to deal with as we change is getting people to not be not be frustrated because something is not going the way that we wanted it set up to be. Um, and realizing, you know, that's just poison to you yourself and then that's gonna come through in those moments. So I think that's been the hardest part. Like you would always say, it was easy, it's easy to shut down. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to open back up. And I think, I haven't talked to a lot of other tasting room managers, but this has been an extremely challenging year because we're trying to open back up and almost kind of pretend like it's all over. Mm -hmm. And we've all just been traumatized. And it's not like there's any way that we can be, that that can change, that we can be like, oh, don't work for two months or whatever it is, we have to move forward. Whatever our passions and whatnot are, this is still a business at the end of the day. So I think, 
I think we're probably all really looking forward to winter this year more than usual. <laughs> <laughs> it's an exciting year uh, because everything is, you know, picking back up and trying to figure out how to do events again and what it'll even look like. And so, I mean, in some ways that's exciting, but uh, as fast as those two years were, it's, we're a lot of out of practice. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we've done a couple of events up at Montenor over the last few months and it's felt really good. And it's also been, there's those moments where you're like, oh, we didn't even, yeah, where's the trash can? You know, because we haven't done this in a long time. Or I tend to host a fair amount of uh, charities uh, in the tasting room after hours. So that's been really, really nice to stand behind the bar and listen to these organizations of people who are doing a lot of really great work. And you're like, okay, maybe we're gonna be okay <laughs> after all, you know? So it's a, uh, Uh, And I will interject, too, that I think in the pandemic, um, when people started coming out again, the one part I really loved about being in the tasting room was hearing people get together and laugh Mm -hmm. and realizing what a special role we were in that we were helping facilitate people coming out of their own, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, seclusion, really, (laughs) and... uh, connecting together again and experiencing joy. Um, that's a very, that was something I thought was really special. That's a great point. I would ask people a lot, if I had groups of six or eight, like how long has it been since you guys seen each other? Because if they said this is the first time, like you're, let's not do tasting, you want bottles. Cause I'm just gonna keep interrupting and you guys haven't talked to each other in a while. So let's just get you some bottles and you have this great space and make that connection. How have you seen uh, customers' uh, kind of wishes and demands change as things have opened back up? What are, what are, what are they expecting, hmm. hoping for, and, and how, is it, how does it kind of align with what you want to be as hospitality hosts? Hmm. I think, I feel like their expectations have changed a little bit. It's been an ebb and flow. I think at the beginning it was really difficult to get people to connect to making reservations, get used to that. A lot of no-shows in the first year, because I think people are doing a shotgun effect. Let's make a whole ton of reservations because not knowing how this works and then showing up to wherever they wanted to. The second year was much better, but I think now we're going, we're seeing a lot more walk-ins. So I think that's, you know, people are trying to feel like, let's just get back to it. But the one thing I did notice that's really changed and is still holding pretty well is I've not seen a lot of people going to three, four, and five tasting rooms in a day. One or two is really average anymore, which I really appreciate because they came to you for a reason. Um, So that's been really nice. Uh, You know, you still have the people every now and then or you guys are short staffed. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's good because we wanted to give you a not as good a time as you wanted to have. That was our goal. So, <laughs> you know, glad you picked up on that. So, uh, but that's not as bad. I mean, wine is uh, really uh, tends to be low on the Karens anyway. You know, this is very different than restaurants and bars. And even to the point where somebody has a bad time, you kind of, they leave, you're kind of like, that's weird. You know, I don't get it, but... It still happens. I find it more in the shipping than anything else. That's where all the bad, all the bad blood is in the fact that I don't own UPS and I can't tell their driver to leave it with their neighbor. Uh, but otherwise, I think in the tasting room, people have really adapted 
generally pretty well. Yeah, I would agree. I think people have adapted. There, I mean, you still do get a percentage of folks who are like, oh, but I mean, you still get a percentage of folks who are like, oh, I remember when it was free to go tasting and it was just the winemaker in the bar. And it's like, well, that's that's why it was free. And now you're coming up and you want the view and you want the experience and you want all of this and you want to do this and you want to do this. Well, guess what? That costs money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it takes people to do these things for you and you have to keep them employed and they need to be paid. Yeah, the, the experience arms race is a double-edged sword. It's great because there's lots of things to do and lots of interesting uh, opportunities, but yeah, we have to constantly more spaces and more this and more that. And it's fun because it, it breaks it up for us as well. They're not just doing the same thing every day. But I do think the pandemic gave us an opportunity to strip all that stuff away mm. as an industry and just focus on the wine, you know, and that's why we're all really here. We're not, we're not here for to be a party spot or a bar, or that's not what anybody got into this industry to do that, I, that I've met or talked to or know of. You know, it really let us strip all that away. And now we can be a little more intentional about the experiences that we're crafting and cultivating for, for people. And I think that's an exciting place to be. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your brand a little bit now. Hey. Uh, talk about uh, the, the the impetus for it. Uh, you mentioned you wanted to be a winemaker from the start. Mm -hmm. So tell me about making your first wine. Oh, okay. The, oh. <laughs> um, was it the four, it was the fourteen? The fourteen. It's the first one that went in bottle. But the first commercial vintage 16. was the sixteen, and that was up here, and that was a wonderful thing. You know, finding a name for your label is a really challenging thing to do because you want to find something that's significant and meaningful to you that hasn't been used <clears throat> in a million places, and um, so we actually. Um, we, cho we chose our last name. Uh, Ari's last name and my last name were not the names when we married. We chose Gray because we felt like it was, uh, neither, neither one of us was giving something up when we <laughs> entered our marriage that way. And that, you know, Gray is the space of in-betweens and mm -hmm. meeting in the middle. And so that's, it just made sense to us. So, uh, so we chose that. And then we looked at the Oregon state motto of uh, she flies on her own wings and called our label Grey Wing. Um, didn't find anything else out there on Grey Wing. I think now there's like a mattress company in Australia, in Australia. or something and like that. And there's some kind of like cybersecurity we're, company. We're safe. Yeah. Um, but partially did that too because my dad uh, named the vineyard after a family member, an ancestor of mine, uh, Johnson Blackfeather. So my family's enrolled Shawnee and uh, it, it felt like that fell under that umbrella really well and we knew we would have a black feather wine at one point and it's it's a very sticky and challenging thing to talk about because um, there's not a lot of native representation in winemaking and mm -hmm. uh, it's a very layered subject as to why there's a lot of stereotypes about uh, drunk Indians and uh, if they're not true, but uh, a lot of government funding is also tied to sobriety in native communities. So at the same time, you know, you are what you are and you want to step forward and honor your own past. Like everybody gets to do that in wine. So I want to step forward and honor mine, but I don't want to monetize it, you know, especially because yes, I'm enrolled Shawnee and my family is also enrolled Cherokee, but we're also white passing and it's obvious. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to go out there and be like, yeah, this is who I am. 
but it is part of who I am and it's a big part of who I am and I want to honor that and own that so our goal was always to do that thoughtfully with the label and then to give back to the communities that uh we came from. So we donate money to uh, Adopt a Native Elder, uh, which is from the Southwest. I'm from Albuquerque. He's from Tucson. So the food disparity out in some of the uh, reservations out there is just appalling. So we we make a 10% donation with everything we sell to that community. We also donate to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, um, the Navajo Water Project, like just every everywhere we can. Uh, which has been a beautiful, beautiful part of what we do. Absolutely. Uh, and, a, and a big part of what's behind what we do with winemaking and trying to put our label out there and create a dialogue about, hey, you know, this beautiful valley that we're all in, the reason it's here is because of the indigenous people that were here before. and. We talk as an industry all the time about the Missoula floods and go all the way back to, you know, prehistoric times. And then suddenly it's um, a bunch of white people in the valley planting grapes. And wow, we're lucky to have this industry, but there's a big part missing from that. And that was the native people who lived here and created this valley that we're all enjoying. And so that's, uh, I'm on my soapbox for that. I'm sorry, but uh, it's just something I, I strongly believe in doing. And uh, and that's the hard part with it. You know, I've had conversations with people from the Grand Ron. I want to honor that, but also you have to do that in the way that they want to be honored. And so, you know, I frequently like, I'm just going to check in. Is this right? Because a lot of people say, okay, land acknowledgement, just do a land acknowledgement. But I mean, that's kind of virtue signaling in a way, because you're like, oh, hey, yeah, this was Kalapulia land and now I'm done, you know, and I don't have to actually do anything that honors that community. So learning what that looks like is, is quite a journey and um, I don't know that it's going to look like anything I I have no clue yet right. but I'm I'm just going to do the work and stay on that pathway as best I can and um, yeah yeah we're very proud of that and uh, in the meantime we get to make fruit uh, wine from fruit up here which is amazing Mike and Marianne let me take my uh, choice of blocks which is pretty great I do pay for it but uh, I, don't, I don't I don't get it for free Full price. <laughs> uh, but I do get my pick and that I feel very fortunate fortunate to do um, and then we're making bubbles off of my family pro I knew I wanted to make bubbles right away because yeah. it's like hey is it gonna be hard let me make it ten times harder <laughs> that's, that's that's for me um, and we've done it all by hand yeah. which is kind of amazing you know we pick the fruit we destem it by hand we've uh, I mean use gravity flow for everything because we don't have a pump so uh, we will get a tractor for uh, to lift something up and we'll just figure it out mm -hmm. and you know in order to use the fancy equipment for bubbles you need to have like 400 cases or something like that we're never gonna have 400 cases of bubbles I can't imagine I should say yeah. having 400 cases the of most bubbles. we've done is 30 yeah so far so tiny right um, I would like to do more but yeah. you got to learn how to do it right first uh, and we've been disgorging by hand and uh, we label by hand we do it all ourselves by hand and I and I love that I'm so yeah. connected to each dang bottle <laughs> that goes out there because we've done every little thing to it I love it yeah for sure yeah it's an intense process. Yeah. 
from the, and that's really, the, one thing about the bubbles, it was so exciting to release last weekend at Uncommon Wine is that, well, A, it just speaks to the community. Domaine Dubroy is here offering up their space for all of us who don't have spaces. And they spent a lot of money and their team put a lot of work into that. And they were pouring their bubbles, but I doubt they sold very much of it because that wasn't the point. So that's just part of this community that we're in here in Oregon, which is different than most wine communities. But then, especially the 2018 sparkling, I mean, that fruit was harvested almost four years ago. And it was just completed and so many hours of labor and time and wonder and study to finally open those bottles for people was, mm-hmm. it was amazing. And that's fruit I grow versus fruit we buy. And so that was really special that as well. Cool too. Yeah. 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 All those hours walking through the vineyard, <laughs> arguing with the greenery and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a lot of fruit we have at the folks property, it's but it's an, it's enough to, you know, at least get a barrel of bubbles mm-hmm. out of, and that's, you know, when you're managing it yourself and <laughs> have the hoe and, you know, you're doing all the spraying and everything. Plus you have a full-time job, you know, plus you have a household to run. It's a lot. It's a yeah, lot. It's enough. We I'll can just purchase fruit. <laughs> I'll spraying dress like this because I'm going directly to my tasting room. So I know people sometimes probably drive by like the weirdest farming that? outfits <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> but it's great because, you know, part of the project to me, and I think we've talked about this as well, is that aspect of being in the tasting room. And then somebody says, oh, what's happening in the vineyard? I go, well, let me tell you what I was doing this morning, you know, or it's harvest time and my hands are purple. You know, I can tell you about what's going on because I do it every day. And so that's really exciting to really have that connection there. What was the process like for the two of you to learn vineyard work? I, I've done, I've taken some classes at Chemeketa, uh, life kind of, I was hoping to get the associates in vineyard management, but with, I still do a little handyman on the side. We have a Queen Anne Victorian that's seven years into, uh, Fixing up. Fixing up and 20,000 years away from being complete. And uh, and so really I go work on somebody else's house and then I take that money and I just go put it in my house. And uh, so I've taken some classes, I've read some books, a lot of discussion with the vineyard management at uh, where I work and just getting out there and trying. I know there's a lot more I could be doing, um, but the fruit tastes good. The fruit tastes good. The bubbles are good, so. If good wine is grown, then all right, I did okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I have big lofty goals. I have a lot of, I love tracking. So I have a lot of uh, really big, uh, like first few years, I was doing all the degree days and humidities and and life just gets too busy. And I realized with the small, it's it's also really tiny. So quarter acre, it's like 1800 vines, something like that. So taking a lot of records is all well and good, but it's not like I could go, okay, this section this year, we're going to do this, but not this. And then over here, we're going to try this pruning technique because all the fruit goes into the same batch anyway. And I mean, I guess I could try and see if one thing works better, but it's such a small section that there's already enough variability within the few rows there are that uh, it would be really hard to tell. I do some like, uh, it's funny because my father-in-law and I, we basically split the responsibilities. So he manages one section, I manage the other, and he is super basic. He just does sprays. He doesn't, uh, you know, we're not doing any additive to the sprays, even though we always get the OVS 
spray schedule. And so I'm like adding kelp and I'm doing uh, boron and all these things. He's always like, so what's that gonna do? What's that gonna do? I love him. He's very, oh, he's so fantastic in his way of just like, he always wants to know what you know, and he's willing to. And, and he's also like, getting the leaf blower out for when he sprays. He's got this awesome up. spray set up with a leaf blower and yeah. hoses. And, so it really gets down under there. Oh, I love it. It's and uh, <laughs> and then the funny thing happened. Funny things happen like. I didn't measure boron right, and boron is very small amounts, and I got some burn. And so here I am. I'm like, oh, I'm doing all this extra stuff. I'm like, mm, doesn't look very good. <laughs> <laughs> or doing like mycorrhiza and all, you know, uh, BD500, and his block still looks better than mine. But it's older. It's older. He also lives, his back door is 10 feet from the block, so <laughs> and he's retired. He's got plenty of time to fiddle fart around but it's fun it's fun for us to have that we've got a really great relationship so it's really fun to we love to harass each other and I always tell him how much I respect him because for one thing besides all the other things he's one of the only people I know that's willing to make himself look like he knows nothing to see what you know and most people aren't willing to admit they don't know something at all to the point where now after all these years He'll just be questioning me if finally I'm like, because I'm getting frustrated. He's like, how do you not? And I'm like, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and he just gets that glint in his eye and laughs. Like, you turd. <laughs> I love you. Let's go. Let's go. Drink some bubbles. Yeah, drink some bubbles and yeah. put the cover crop in or something. So, yeah, that's they're fun. Mm -hmm. They're always part of the process and doing something. Mom pushing the grapes and putting them in the, dis the, uh, the stemmer and... Yeah yelling at us if we're going too fast. <laughs> it sounds like wild chaos. Oh yeah, they're fun. <laughs> they are fun. <laughs> Although he gave up helping me wax the bottles after a few because I was, they have to be very specifically waxed. And I was nice about it, but every bottle like, no, 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 little angle like this, no, a little more like this. He's kind of like, I'm good, where's my glass? <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> so. Brandy, tell me about the experience for you learning learning the winemaking process, and uh, what was the first uh, the first time you felt like I'm a winemaker? Oh, wow, that's tough because I still <laughs> fight with that because I think being really small and somebody who doesn't like to talk about myself very often, I mean, my whole life is learning other people's stories and communicating other people's stories. So suddenly you're in a position where you're talking about yourself and that doesn't feel so comfortable. So imposter syndrome is real and it's really hard, especially when you're small to be out there and be like, yeah, I mean, two to four barrels a year. I mean, that's still winemaking. I'm still a winemaker but I don't get a paycheck for being a winemaker. I mean, I cover my costs and we donate and that's good, but I do, it's not like <laughs> I make a living doing this. So do I, what right do I have to say I'm a winemaker? And I go back and forth in my head over that, with that all the time, but just. You did just get your first paycheck from the winery though. Oh, that's true, I did just get a paycheck. <laughs> I didn't, um, Actually, did. Ari uh, <laughs> believes in me and this is one of the wonderful one one of the many wonderful things it is to have him around is because I'm the kind of person who will stand there at a festival and be like, yes, this is this wine, but I really could have done this, and I wish I'd had more of that. And Ari's like, this is great. Drink it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And he actually submitted our wines to James Suckling, and I did not know that. Um, and I pro it's good because I would have been like, don't do it because we're too small and who's going <laughs> to care? And we got a 93 and a 92 on our Pinots, which was 
respectable, I thought. Yeah. Um, so that was, I think, the first moment where I was like, hey, there's somebody who does not know mm -hmm. me, does not care, is not invested in me whatsoever. And I got pretty darn good score there. Mm -hmm. That felt really good. That felt really, really good. So appeared, thank you for doing well, that. You know, yeah. You're welcome. Thank you for making good wine. <laughs> well, we got in that article in Ianique magazine. We've never, never heard of the author. And they were like, oh, yeah, I'm Hill Carlton. You got to try. Here's the five wineries you should try. And her name was on the list. Yeah, up with like Belle Pont and yeah. like, are you kidding me? Okay. That's just because I was randomly searching our name on the internet one day. And so it's those little moments that like, oh, we're actually, you know, despite being so small. And it was yeah. fun, you know, in, in, in being the intentionality of small as well as really fun. Like when we were at Uncommon, you know, I talked to people, oh, we only make this much wine. I say, and that's on purpose. It's not because we can't afford to be bigger. We can't don't want to or don't need to or all of these different things it's just this is an in, there's an intentionality behind it um which i always love about winemaking too intentionality you don't really do anything randomly or you shouldn't i guess yeah <laughs> and i remember the first time i poured for uh, some guests up here and somehow it came up i don't remember because i like i said i don't really bring it up that often and uh they had had my wine. Oh, that's right. I, well, we've had that. Oh, it was really good. I'm like, wow, okay. So I'm pouring for people who know who I am as a winemaker, and I didn't even know that that's that exciting. was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what do you enjoy about the process of winemaking? Okay. When I'm done cleaning? <laughs> just kidding. Um, I was just talking with another uh, person about this the other day, and it's different when you're doing this between having other roles in your life to balance. But one of the best parts about a har the harvest time is <laughs> there's nothing simple about making wine. There really isn't, uh, not good wine anyway, but it is the simplicity of that time. Like you wake up and there's this clarity of purpose that this is what my life is about today. And I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna make this happen. And you're just, the the presence that you feel, um, you're just really, I guess, in the element of life that you wanna be in um, is how I explain yeah. that feeling. Um, that's a hard thing not to live for. Yeah, the logistics of the, and that clarity of moment because the all right doesn't I don't the, the, the day doesn't matter there the certain things have to happen in this process you know the grapes got to get in and then they got to be here and then they got to be in the distemmer and then they got to firm you know the, all yeah. those steps that there's it is exciting it's very exciting yeah. and and if you can't get excited about that time of year and you just view it as a chore, like, why are you in this industry? You know what I mean? Yeah. And we're makers and we're gardeners. And so, you know, always the idea of harvest and harvesting the work and harvesting the, you know, I always say make your own luck. And that's part of that too. Something happens. Okay. That's harvesting all that work and effort I put in to make sure these people knew and these things were in place. Like, oh, it's not lucky to get 93 points. It's Sure, because it is lucky because who knows what mood he was in that day and where you were in <laughs> yeah. and all of those yeah. things, but you made that luck happen by putting all those those pieces in together. And, you know, wine is so, it's funny because it's so freewheeling, but it's so meticulous at the same time. It's, I love that duality. And then just the mystery and what's gonna happen and opening that bottle and <laughs> what does this taste like now after everything we've done? Um, yeah, it's really exciting and, and yeah. amazing. Uh, 
and so many places where it could go wrong in every possible fashion is really kind of amazing. I say in the tasting room a lot, I'm like, you know, because a lot of us re-careered into wine. And so you're working with all these really highly dedicated people because most of us didn't realize at such a young age that that's what you wanted to do. And so then you, you go to school for wine and they're like, okay, you're gonna be a scientist and a farmer and a marketer and a party planner and invest tons of money. That's gonna take you a ton of time to get back if you ever get it back and 2000 tasting rooms a year open in America. And then we all go, yeah. Yeah, let's do that, yeah. <laughs> Where do I sign? <laughs> Maniacs, you know? Like especially the last few years with farming, you're just like, why am I farming? This is crazy, mm -hmm. you know? But then it works. And somebody tastes your product and they go, wow. That's why I did all that. That's why I spent a hundred hours putting that wine in the bottle. Yeah. And learning how to do all these things, like learning how to disgorge. We spent years going, how do we disgorge? How do we hand disgorge? How do we do that? And then I just. Figured it out. Watched a video and <laughs> did it and it worked. I mean, it took some time to... Oh, it did. Yeah. <laughs> it did. How do people ever make wine before YouTube, I wonder? <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I don't know. Well, I'm curious about selling <clears throat> wine. Obviously, you both have spent a lot of time selling other people's wines. What, what's different about selling your own wine, and how has the process gone so far? Mm. Yeah, I put Ari on the selling part because again, I'm just like, oh, uh, I don't know. So this is this is for you. <laughs> the funny part is I stayed away from three tier <clears throat> distribution with all my might because it just sounds like the worst, most horrible part of the industry. Um, but then there I am calling up stores and can I pour and you know that learning curve of. Of course, there's a whole learning curve in three tier of like all the different scales of pricing and all of that, but I don't worry about that because I sell the places that buy like six bottles. And so I have one set price, but that part has been really tough because it's one thing to pour wine that somebody else made, like, like it, don't like it. I don't, I mean, I don't really care. I don't care because that's how it is without wine. You might not like it, that's fine. You're not gonna hurt my feelings. Also, I'm an artist and I've been in a hundred critiques, so say what you want anyway. I don't yeah. really care. She doesn't really care for my art and that's fine. She just looks at it and goes, I don't get it. I'm like, that's fine, that's, you don't have to. Um, but then to stand in a store and you're like waiting for this answer and a lot of stores don't like to give you an answer, uh, but I make them tell me no. I will keep emailing you and calling you. Just say no and I'll leave you alone. But then also the learning curve of some places are not gonna carry your wine, but they're never adverse to somebody bringing them free wine. So like being in a store waiting for my turn to pour and looking on the shelves and being like, oh, uh, there's no point in me being here or talking to a restaurant. And now I've learned, so I was talking to a restaurant in McMinnville. Oh yeah, go ahead and bring it on by. And I'm looking around like, is there any place on the shelf for wine of this price point in this? And he's like, yeah, not really, but you can still bring a bottle by. I'm like, Okay, no. I mean, I only made whatever, you know, I only have 25 cases of this wine. Um, now on the DTC side and being at events, it's just really exciting. Uh, I always have an extremely high level of ownership and I get asked almost every day in the tasting room if I'm the owner or the winemaker. Um, and to, so to be there and to be able to say yes or to be able to say no, Brandy's the winemaker and be able to talk up what she's done and use all that experience I have and enthusiasm to say like, no, this is our thing. This is what we are doing. <clears throat> and if wine is a reflection of the people, place and time that it's made, 
especially when it comes to the bubbles now. It's like, these are my footsteps. These are her decisions on the winemaking. This is us disgorging, us making all those decisions all the way around. And now I'm a part of your story. We're a part of your story and you're a part of our story now. And uh, there's just something really magical about that. I think for us, for sales, especially because we're so small, it's more about finding a few good placements than it is trying to get out here and here and here and here. I mean, I think pretty much anyone will tell you making Pinot Noir and getting a placement in the valley is an incredibly hard thing to do. And you're up there with people with a lot of brand recognition, like how you're not going to compete with that. You're not going to. Um, But we've found some people who have believed in us and they'll you know, they'll care and we'll sell and move wine at at those locations. So it's more about that. It's yeah. Finding people who believe in you and you connect with. Yeah. And trying to find places where they can taste the wine. That's the the whole difference. Uh, We were in Park Avenue, fine wines, amazing location. Unfortunately, they're closed now. Um, But without that day-to-day promotion and without them tasting the wine, we're just one more label on the shelf. And so it moved really slow, whereas when we go to Uncommon or something like that, or some of our other placements that have been more of wine bars and open the wine, it moves. It really, really moves. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not because our friends are showing up or things, you know, these are people that we don't know. And so for us, it's mostly about, okay, yes, distribution is having some bottles out there is great, but given our size and scope, and lack of uh, positive revenue, that's not the right, lack of, <laughs> lack of, lack of paychecks. Uh, you know, I'd rather sell it for retail than wholesale. So let's just try to, and I want that experience. I want to watch people open the wine or try the wine and, and be excited by it. And, that's, yeah. and that's, now that the pandemic has <clears throat> seems to be ebbing away, I just, oh, who doesn't say that with trepidation? Uh, but uh, I'd like to explore, and we've talked about trying to host some events ourselves um, and find some places to host events where we're pouring our wine and connecting and inviting people. So I think that's the next step for us. Which is challenging. I mean, you know, here we're both hospitality professionals all day, very demanding job. I mean, from the outside, yes, we pour wine, we talk to people, but the emotional part of that and then you know running a tasting room it's kind of ludicrous to look at an ad for a tasting room manager job and then think i'm gonna go and try to convince somebody to let me do this with the like 15,000 line items of what your job and i love that job i love doing that but it is it's very demanding and so then to go home and say okay did you work out? Did the dogs get to run? What's for dinner? And what's the downtime? And oh yeah, what's our marketing plan? And what are we doing for a party? That's a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. That's a huge challenge. So, you know, and this year has been exceedingly challenging on the, the retail side. So I'm excited to find our way. And we don't want to sell out either. I don't want to get to a point where we're sitting on no wine, especially in bubbles and waiting for that to come around. So. It's kind of that balancing act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talk about being intentionally <clears throat> small. So as you look ahead, then do you have goals in mind for either new things to try or a certain size to be or more infrastructure in place? Yeah. And that comes from some of our travels too. Like mm-hmm. we've, I'm a huge lover of travel. I mean, I would say who isn't, but actually a lot of people hate it and I don't understand <laughs> them whatsoever. Uh, but we were in Spain, uh, last January Mm -hmm. and I had a a Tempranillo Blanco. I've never had a white Tempranillo before. It was delicious. Why isn't anybody making this? Where is that in the valley? I know that people are growing Tempranillo (laughs) out here. Um, 
I we we're talking about bringing in some uh, Mueller this year and maybe trying some amphora ferments. Uh, that's the fun part about being small is you get to make what you want. You know, you're not beholden to whatever. You just like, I'm going to experiment this year and I'm going to make, you know, 25, 30 cases of this and see how I love it. And if I love it, maybe I'll make more. Um, so just being open to that possibility. We actually, I know some people don't love Pinot Noir ports because they don't think that the tannins stand up to it, but I've had <clears> some <throat> really interesting Pinot Noir ports and we were in Portugal as well thinking, hey, you know, why don't we just give it a try? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think experimentation is on our horizon and that's really exciting and fun. Yeah. One, one nice thing about not having the wine club because we don't, it gives us that ability to not be tied in. It's like we have to have this much Pinot or this much of that. And again, that flexibility to try, mm -hmm. to try something new. Yeah. Fun. Just about the Oregon industry a little <clears throat> bit for a moment here. I'm curious your initial impressions of, of the wines here and of, of the people making them and perhaps how those impressions have changed or how the industry has changed <clears throat> in your time in it. Well, I mean, I certainly, coming from a journalism background where you hold your sources, you know, close and you don't share that, to find an industry where I felt like people were very open and sharing about information was mind-blowing to me, really. And, and I feel like that's still true. Um, there's plenty of industry professionals, uh, winemakers that I've talked to about my project and even though it's small, they're like, well, come over, I'll show you how to do this. Or let, you know, let me help you. And this is what I use for that. And here's some calculations for this. And they're more than willing to just invite you in and, and share. And it's a very, it's a very beautiful, special, real thing that happens in the Oregon wine industry. And, and that initial <clears throat> impression has not changed. On the DCC side, I would say it actually got better uh, because we do have, there's a number of Facebook groups depending on which part of the industry you're in, in Oregon. And one of them is for tasting rooms specifically. And through COVID, it was constant. What reservation system is everyone using? How are you doing tastings? How is this? How, what's your large group policy? How, and everybody's out there just, here's this information, here's this information, instead of just like cloistering and saying, no, 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 this is for me and I'm not gonna help you. Um, so it, I think it's, it's, it's held and maybe even gotten better. Uh, we've been more disconnected through COVID because we also used to be a very uh, events-driven group. I mean, we were constantly going to industry events, um, which were just phenomenal and uh, kind of missed that, but it'll come back. It's starting to come back slowly. Uh, just make that connection throughout the whole industry. And then of course, symposiums and whatnot. It's just always been an incredibly open and giving industry, mm -hmm. at least in this region here. Are there changes you've seen on the, uh, the kind of industry scale? I guess more of just like the big dogs coming in and the outsiders coming in and maybe not. And I don't have much information, even anecdotally, about what's going on there, but I can see them coming in and not realizing like what the vibe is out here. I've seen it a few times but, here and there. You know, I think but. about this a lot, um, again, with my background as a reporter and having to sit through planning and zoning meetings, very exciting stuff. But um, one of the things I learned is that like a development's going to come in, right? And everyone says, no, we don't want this development to come in. Guess what? The development always comes in. 
It always does. They have more money. They have better lawyers. They're coming in. You cannot stop them. I understand the sentiment that comes behind it, but the best thing you can do is say, okay, here are our standards. This is what we expect. And this is, and I think if people were to approach it that way, they'd have more success. So I feel it's our responsibility in this industry to be those kinds of advocates for what we want the industry mm -hmm. to be as these new people are coming in because they're coming, they're not going to stop. Um, and it's our responsibility to show them how we want it done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about what comes next for Oregon wine? You mentioned obviously the last couple of years have had a pretty major impact. Uh, as things start to open up again, what are you expecting the industry to look like in the, in mm. the upcoming years? Um, God. More <laughs> bubbles, I think. The bubbles train is unstoppable now that we've figured out Chardonnay. Uh, the industry as a whole. Wow. Gosh, that's so hard. I mean, like, did you ask me that? Had I been asked that question before the pandemic, I probably would have had an answer, but now I'm like, who knows what tomorrow holds. <laughs> I'm excited to see, because one thing that happened is, you know, obviously it's easy to work on momentum in so many places. It worked. I mean, if you're having 240 people come through your tasting room on a Saturday, what are you fixing? Except just making sure you have enough staffing and, and infrastructure. But everyone had to rethink and stop. And then people saw, oh, wait, we did tableside service. Maybe we weren't making as much overall revenue, but our average was better and our labor was lower. So I'm excited to see what the hybrid is mm -hmm. and what everybody, what everyone's hybrid is, not just what a hybrid is. So, you know, people being able to rethink what they wanted to do. And, you know, like at Montenor, we kind of rebuilt the whole brand after 40 years from the ground up. So I think it gave everybody a lot of opportunity to uh, reevaluate. And I think now coming into this winter, there'll be a lot of shift and change, but for the best, yeah. And new wines, you know, I think that's one thing about America that's really funny, you know, like in France, we're like, or, you know, we've been making this wine for seven generations. In America, we're like, this grease grapes have been on the property for like 10 years now. This is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> Pinot, I'm so over Pinot. So that's exciting. I mean, I love Pinot Noir. Uh, I bleed it, but uh, it's fun to see what else comes out. Mm. Orange wines and bubbles and whatever else interesting things come out. Talk about the future kind of for, for Grey Wing. Tell me about the future for the two of you. Uh, anything else you're looking forward to uh, individually or together? Uh, kind of future goals or future projects? Oh my gosh, they're all, the, they're all ongoing projects. <laughs> the house, the dogs, the... We love travel uh, and we love to spend a lot of time in Europe. So we are hoping that uh, maybe that's a retirement goal. Um, but otherwise, I think wine is interesting because <laughs> Your goals versus what the industry ends up setting for you could be very different things. Uh, I can't imagine making enough wine that that would be our only job. So I set a limit at home too. Like yeah. we come home and I'm like, all right, we have half an hour to talk about work and what we're doing next and label and then no just know we need to talk about something else because <laughs> like, otherwise that's all you talk about and you are actually a very boring person um it happens <laughs> and i like to talk about checklist things so yeah, yeah. It's, it's easy no. for me to if ari can and... monetize it he will he will <laughs> i've not tried to monetize your soap making oh yes you have it's not true <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you told me right from the beginning, this is fun. It's not a business. Yeah. Fun's important. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I definitely see us growing. Um, I would like to see, uh, you know, some more, I mean, just on economies of scale. Uh, yeah, but a little not, bigger. Yeah. Not huge. I can't, I, could, I can't even really imagine us getting to 500. That seems like an, an, a crazy goal, but... We'll see. Who knows? Who knows what life brings you and... So long as it's sustainable, that's what matters. Well, I think one thing we both learned is, yeah, plans and goals are good, but life is, life is twisty. And it's fun to be open to that and, you know, moving to a place with never having seen it, that's... Yeah, create room for your future self. And I mean, you know, we were engaged like two weeks after we met so it's we're true. willing yeah. to you know take a chance and <laughs> it's been 15 years so yeah it worked even though now if you told me you did that it's that you're crazy <laughs> and then i go oh yeah oh i did that that's right do as i say not as i do kind <laughs> yeah. of thing yeah. right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when it works when it happens it happens yeah amazing last question for you if someone <clears throat> were to ask your advice or words of wisdom on getting into the organ wine industry <clears throat> what would you tell them I mean, I've actually, we've been watching a friend do just that, mm -hmm. um, sent her to the Chemeketo program and said, you know, do your research, do some studying mm -hmm. uh, and try things on, um, get out and taste, find, find what excites you. Yep. Work hard. Find what excites yeah. you and work hard. Yeah. Try to all take all the opportunities you can. Yeah. Work every harvest. I don't, even, I, can't even, I don't even know how many places I've helped with harvest at this point. Not anymore. That's, I mean, I, love, I wouldn't change uh, doing gray wing, but, you know, there was always, <clears throat> you know, going into Colleen really early and helping with harvest and then opening the tasting room. And there's really not time or energy for that anymore with having the, the, the brand of our own and everything else going on. Because, of course, everybody does everything different. So, you know, diversify, try as many different places as you can. You know, there's a reason that people chase the harvest because if you can get two harvests a year in four years, you've made eight vintages. I mean, that's that's incalculable when it comes to experience, mm -hmm. especially if you're starting early in your career, which if you're going to chase harvest, you better be young. Whereas we didn't. Your joints won't be able to keep up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we didn't start in the industry until we were in our 30s. So, you know, like you all have quite a jump there. There's something to be said for other experience. That's what's one thing that's amazing about the wine industry. Whatever thing you've done, there's somewhere where it applies. And uh, so, yeah, work hard, try everything. Mm -hmm. Try all the wines. Fantastic. That's all the questions that I have for the two of you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything mm. we didn't cover that we should have covered? That you wish to cover? No. I don't think so. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, Fantastic. Thank you both so much. Thanks for setting it up in this beautiful spot for us, sharing your stories with us. Yeah. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.